If you'd like to learn more about the Texas Radio Theater Company, be sure to log on to www.texasradiotheater.com. Welcome to this, our Halloween episode for 2009. Eight years ago this weekend, we performed our second live performance in front of an audience. It was the classic Mercury Theater War of the Worlds. As anyone who's performed it live knows, the first act usually is what the audience enjoys most. The second, well, let me put it this way, if, if they're waiting for you to get off the stage so they can get down to some serious karaoke, you might be in some trouble. Still, we got our adrenaline rush that night, and it was uh, way better than any trick-or-treating. At least we thought so. Uh, but this week, you're going to hear our first studio recording from uh, July 2004. As opposed to what we normally do, which is play the music and sound effects at the same time as the actors, thus creating a complete performance mix, this time we recorded the voice tracks solo and mixed the sounds and music later. Like the Schlock Audio Theater podcasts and the Hecate Hill, which you might have heard, you may notice these do sound a little bit different from our live performances. This is Jim Court's adaptation of The Brazilian Cat on the Texas Radio Theater Podcast. The Brazilian Cat by Arthur Conan Doyle Adapted for audio by Jim Court Driver, do you happen to know anything about Mr. Everard King at Greyland's Court? Everard King? A fine gentleman, Governor, make no mistake. Why, there's not charity anywhere around here that he hasn't subscribed to, and generous-like. He's always doing for others, that's what he is. Oh, I'm very pleased to hear it. It is hard luck on a young fellow to have expensive tastes, great expectations, aristocratic connections, but no actual money in his pocket. My father was convinced up to the day he died that his wealthy brother, Lord Southerton, would look after me, a position on the state, perhaps, or a post in the diplomatic corps. But neither my uncle nor the state took the slightest notice of me. Everybody loves Mr. King round these parts. He's always throwing open Greyland so folks can come round and see his animals. What animals are they? Oh, bless you, Governor, don't you know? When he came back from South America, Mr. King brought a proper zoo back with him. Crates and crates of creatures from all them heathen lands, like a bloomin' Noah's Ark it was. Really? Right you are. He wants to try and raise them in a civilised climate. Oh, they're all about the place. Month by month, it was more and more difficult to get the brokers to renew my bills or to raise any further cash on the strength of my being Lord Southerton's heir. Despite frequent bouts of ill health, it appeared that my uncle had resolved to never die. Ruin lay right across my path, and every day I saw it clearer, nearer, and more absolutely unavoidable. Yeah, you see that, bud? Looks like a J, but bigger, see? Bright blue? That's one of them. Oh, I forget what that one's called. Oh, and, and see there, that, see that thing rooting around in the dirt? That's an armadillo, that is. Ugly brute, but the children seem to like it. Does Mr. King have children? <laughs> no, no, Governor, the school children round here, I meant. He's always having them round to entertain them. Like I say, always doing for others is Mr. King. I wouldn't be surprised if he's thinking of standing for Parliament. And then, one day, 
I received in the mail an invitation from my cousin, Everard King, to visit him at his estate in Suffolk. Cousin Everard had made a packet of money in South America, and then returned home and bought Grayland's Court. I was surprised to hear from him. He had never taken much notice of me before, but I quickly saw this as my last chance. For the family credit, I didn't think my cousin would let me go to the wall, so it was either a short visit at Grayland's Court, or a much longer one in Bankruptcy Court. And that was how I came to be in Clipton on the Marsh, riding in a dog cart on my way to Grayland's Court. Cousin Marshall, delighted to see you, old chap. Mr. Everard King's appearance was very homey and benevolent, short and stout, 45 years old, perhaps, with a round, good-humoured face, burned brown with the tropical sun and shot with a thousand wrinkles. He wore white linen clothes in true planter style, with a cigar between his lips and a large Panama hat upon his head. And this is my wife, Marina. My dear, this is Cousin Marshall. I'm sure you remember me mentioning him. Welcome. She was a tall, haggard woman of Brazilian extraction, though she spoke excellent English. I could see in her dark, expressive eyes that I was not very welcome at Grayland's court. Had she divined so quickly the hidden purpose in my coming? It seemed incredible. I had convinced myself that I must be imagining it, but the next morning, after an excellent breakfast, I had reason to change my mind. Then the headman said, No, senor, the snake you have killed is not poisonous, but the one in the grass behind you certainly is. (laughs) (laughs) You're remarkably quiet this morning, my dear. Do you remember that headman? Joao was his name, I think. Yes, yes. Well, Cousin Marshall, I trust your room is comfortable? Yes, very much so. I can't thank you enough for inviting me. Oh, nonsense, old boy. The pleasure is entirely ours. Isn't it, my dear? (coughs) If there's anything at all that I can do to add to your happiness, please let me know. As a matter of fact, I would like to talk to you about my uncle. Pardon me, sir. A telegram has arrived. Eh? Oh, yes. Will you excuse me? I just must attend to this. The best train in the day is at 12.15. I beg your pardon? The train. You should be on it. But I was not thinking of going today. Oh, if it rests with you. I am sure that Mr. Everard King would tell me if I were outstaying my welcome. What's this? What's this? Is there a problem, my dear? Might I trouble you to walk outside, Marshal? Certainly. I am no eavesdropper. I walked out into the lawn. I was convinced that the woman had seen through me, God knows how, and sought to protect her husband's checkbook from me. But I could not be put off. Cousin Everard was my last hope. I couldn't think what would happen if she confided her suspicions to him. Presently, I heard her footsteps. My husband has asked me to apologize to you, Mr... Marshal King? Please, do not say another word about it, Mrs. King. I quite understand... You fool! (sighs) I hope that my wife has apologized for her foolish remarks. Oh, yes. Yes, certainly. You must not take it seriously. The fact is that my poor dear wife is incredibly jealous... She hates that anyone, male or female, should for an instant come between us. Tell me that you will think no more of it. No, no, certainly not. 
That is good of you. Now, light this cigar and come round with me and see my little menagerie. The whole afternoon was occupied by our inspection, which included all the birds, beasts, and even reptiles that he had imported. Some were free, some in cages, a few actually in the house. Finally, he led me down a corridor which extended from one wing of the house. At the end of this, there was a heavy door with a sliding shutter in it, and beside it there projected from the wall an iron handle attached to a wheel and a drum. A line of stout bars extended across the passage. I am about to show you the jewel of my collection. There is only one other specimen in Europe, now that the Rotterdam Cup is dead. It is a Brazilian cat. How does that differ from any other cat? Oh, you will soon see that. Will you kindly draw that shutter and look through? I slid back the shutter and found that I was gazing into a large, empty room with stone flags and small barred windows upon the farther wall. In the centre of this room, lying in the middle of a golden patch of sunlight, there was stretched an enormous black cat, as large as a tiger, but black and sleek as ebony. It was so graceful, so sinewy, and so gently and smoothly diabolical that I could not take my eyes from the opening. Isn't he splendid? Glorious. I never saw such a noble creature. Some people call it a black puma, but really it's not a puma at all. That fellow is nearly 11 feet from tail to tip. He was sold to me as a newborn cub up in the wild country at the headwaters of the Rio Negro. He speared his mother to death after she had killed a dozen of them. Good Lord, a dozen? They are ferocious, then? The most absolutely treacherous and bloodthirsty creatures on earth. They prefer humans to game, you know. This fellow has never yet tasted living blood, but if he does, he will be a terror. Present, he won't stand anyone but me in his den. Even Baldwin the groom doesn't dare go near him. But I am his mother and father in one. I'll show you. I watched through the aperture in the door as Everard stepped inside the room and approached the beast. At the sound of his voice, it rose, yawned, and rubbed its round black head affectionately against his side while he patted and fondled it. Yes, yes. That's my good boy. Now, Tommy, into your cage. The monstrous cat walked over to one side of the room and coiled itself up under a grating. Everard King came out, and taking the iron handle that I mentioned, he began to turn it. This is how we work it. Give him the run of the room for exercise, and then at night we put him in his cage. Turn this crank and these bars slide into the room to keep him up. Turn it the other way and you let him out. Here we are. Come on in and have a look at him. There, you see? The bars slide in from the passage and make quite an effective cage. How are you, Tommy? Are you my good boy? What a magnificent animal. So sleek and glossy. Oh, don't put your hand in there. I assure you, cousin, that he is not safe. You mustn't try to pet him. Don't imagine that because I can take liberties with him, anyone else can. He is very exclusive in his friends, aren't you, Tommy? 
Here's his lunch coming to him, don't you, Baldwin? Is he uh, in his cage, sir? Quite right, Baldwin. Come ahead. I brought his joint of beef, sir. Just pass it through the bars, Baldwin. Lunchtime, Tommy. Nice joint of beef. <clears throat> yes, sir. Here you are. Come and get it. Here you are. <laughs> you know what he'd rather be lunching on, don't you, Baldwin? Uh, yes, sir. I do, sir. I, I, I'm always thinking he's going to grab me instead. Oh, Robert asked me to bring you this telegram, sir. It just arrived. Thank you. You may go. Yes, sir. I've never known anyone to receive so many telegrams. This is the third one today, isn't it? Yes, business, you know. It occupies me constantly. Uh, ah. Yes, well, I suggest we can do no better than follow Tommy's example and go to our lunch. I stayed at Greyland's Court for six days, always looking for an opportunity to bring up my financial difficulties. One day, as we sat in the billiard room, I finally plucked up my courage and put the matter before him. And that's how it stands with me. I was hoping you could give me some advice. But surely you are the heir of Lord Southerton. You're in line just before me, I believe. I have every reason to believe so, but he would never make me any allowance. Yes, well, he always was a bit of a miser. By the way, have you heard any news of Lord Southerton's health lately? He has always been in a critical condition ever since I was a boy. Exactly. A, a creaking hinge if ever there was one. Your inheritance may be a long way off. Dear me, how awkwardly situated you are. I had some hope, sir, that you, knowing all the facts, might be inclined to advance uh, me. Of course, dear boy, of course. Don't say another word. We shall talk it over tonight, and I give you my word that whatever is in my power shall be done. I shall be most grateful, cousin. Dear boy, I'm glad to do what I can. Now, what do you say to a game of billiards, eh? That evening, as I dressed for dinner, Mrs. King paid an unexpected visit to my room. Mrs. King! I must speak with you. Well, this is rather unorthodox, but I wish to speak to you as well. I know you have not been overly pleased to have me here. I must speak with you no, now. please let me finish. I want you to know that your husband and I have some business to discuss tonight after dinner, and then I shall be on my way. I'm perfectly willing to excuse your unfortunate behavior and let bygones be bygones. You will excuse me? We shall be bygones? Oh, you are so, so English. Mrs. King, really? I tell you again, you must leave at once. At once, do you understand? I shall leave tomorrow. As I said, when my business is concluded. Really, madam, I must say that this is quite... Where are you, my dear? It's time for dinner. I must go. There is no fool like an English fool. I wash my hands of it. What an impossible woman. We had our dinner. There was plenty of animated conversation from Everard and stony silence and cutting glances from Mrs. King. It was a wild night. The wind howled, the rain pelted down, and thunder and lightning split the darkness. 
Cousin Everard had received more telegrams, which he took with him into his study. It was not until long after the household had retired to bed that he emerged, a cigar in one hand and a large tumbler of whiskey in the other. Now, my boy, I had hoped to sit down with you to get an idea of how your affairs stand, but I hadn't realized how late it was. It's almost one o'clock. Oh, well, uh... I, I tell you what, my boy... You must jot it all down upon paper and let me have a note of the amount in the morning. Could you do that? Most certainly. Good, good. I'll understand it when I see it in black and white. Filthy night. High time we were in bed. I, I must just check on the cat before I go to bed. A high wind excites him. Will you come? I'd be glad to. Uh, tread softly then and don't speak, for everyone is asleep. We passed quietly down the lamp-lit hall and through the door at the farther end. All was dark in the stone corridor, but a stable lantern hung on a hook and my host took it down and lit it. As we approached the cat's room, I could see no grating in the passage, so I knew that the beast was in its cage. Come in. Poor Tommy is not in the best of tempers. The storm has upset him. What a black devil he looks, doesn't he? I, I must give him a little supper to put him in a better humor. Would you mind holding the lantern for a moment? All right. His larder is just outside here. You will excuse me for an instant, won't you? What was that? Cousin? Have you bolted the door? Here, let me out. Let me out, I say. All right, don't make a row. You have the light, don't you? Yes, but I don't care about being locked in alone like this. Don't you? Well, you won't be alone for long. Let me out this instant, sir. I tell you, I don't care for practical jokes of any sort. And this one is particular... What are you doing? You're opening the bars. No! No! With a scream, I seized the last bar with my hands and pulled with the strength of a madman. Clinging and clutching, I was dragged across the whole front of the cage until at last, with aching wrists and lacerated fingers, I gave up the hopeless struggle. The grating clanged back as I released it, and everything was still. In a moment, I heard the slam of the distant door. Then everything was silent. The cat had never moved during this time. He lay still in the corner. I saw his great eyes staring steadily at me. I had dropped the lantern when I seized the bars, but it still burned upon the floor. I made a movement to grasp it, with some idea that its light might protect me. But the instant I moved, I stopped and stood still, quivering with fear in every limb. The creature was not more than ten feet from me. The eyes glimmered like two discs of phosphorus in the darkness. They appalled and yet fascinated me. I could not take my own eyes from them. The beast stared at me for a long time and then seemed to lose interest. It rested its sleek, black head upon its huge forepaws, closed its eyes, and seemed to sleep. I stood stone still, lest I should rouse it. There was no way out. The door was locked, the windows were barred, 
no one would hear my cries for help this far from the main house. I knew in ten minutes the candle in the lantern would be out. In ten minutes, I'd be trapped in the dark with the Brazilian cat. I must do something. I must do something. I must... Hello. I saw a chance for something like safety. I have said that the cage had a top as well as a front, and this top was left standing when the front was wound through the slot in the wall. It consisted of bars at a few inches interval with stout wire netting between, and it rested upon a strong stanchion at each end. It stood now as a great barred canopy over the sleeping cat. The space between this iron shelf and the roof was two or three feet. If I could only get up there, squeezed in between bars and ceiling, I should be safe from below, from behind, and from each side. Only on the open face of it could I be attacked. It was now or never, for once the light was out, it would be impossible. <coughs> I sprang up. I seized the iron edge of the top and swung myself panting onto it. I writhed in, face downwards, and found myself looking straight into the terrible eyes and yawning jaws of the cat. It appeared, however, to be rather curious than angry. With a sleek ripple of its long black back, it rose and stretched itself. Rearing onto its hind legs with one forepaw against the wall, it raised the other and drew its claws across the wire mesh beneath me. One claw tore through my trousers and dug a furrow in my knee. The cat dropped down again, puzzled. He began walking swiftly round the room, looking up every now and again in my direction. I shuffled backwards until I lay with my back against the wall, screwing myself into the smallest space possible. The cat seemed more excited now that he had begun to move about, and he ran swiftly round and round the den, passing continually under the iron couch upon which I lay. The candle was burning low, and then, with a last flare and sputter, it went out altogether. I was alone in the dark with the cat. There was nothing I could do. I stretched myself out and lay silently, almost breathlessly, hoping that the beast might forget my presence. That horrible purring seemed louder in the dark. It seemed to come from all around me. I thought of my cousin. I thought of his hatred of me, for what cause I could not tell. The more I thought, the more I saw how cunningly the thing had been done. No hint of blame would fall on him. I was quite certain he had his alibi well in place. A villain! I had to remember to keep quiet. I settled in to wait. I reckoned there were two hours until dawn. Two dreadful hours. At last, a faint glimmer of light came through the windows. I first dimly saw them as two grey squares upon the black wall, then grey turned to white, and I could see my terrible companion once more. And he could see me. 
It was cold, and the chill of the morning had made him irritable. With a continual growl, he paced swiftly up and down the side of the room farthest from me, his whiskers bristling angrily, and his tail switching and lashing. And as he turned at the corners, his savage eyes always looked upwards at me with a dreadful menace. I knew then that he meant to kill me. There was nothing I could use for a weapon. There was no one to hear my cries at this early hour. There was no means of escape. Or was there? I thought suddenly of the cage. The bars were still retracted into the wall. If I could move them back into position once more, I could find a refuge behind them. I would be inside the cage and the Brazilian cat on the outside. But could I pull them back? I hardly dared to move for fear of bringing the creature upon me, but it was my only chance. Slowly, very slowly, I put my hand forward until it grasped the edge of the front, the final bar that protruded from the wall. To my surprise, it moved quite easily. Apparently, it ran on some sort of wheels. I pulled again, and three inches of it came through. I pulled again, and the cat sprang. In an instant, the blazing yellow eyes, the flattened black head with its red tongue and flashing teeth were within reach of me. The cat swayed there for an instant, the hind paws clawing to find a grip upon the edge of the grating, but it had misjudged its leap. It couldn't hold on. Scratching madly at the bars, it swung backwards and dropped heavily upon the floor. With a growl, it instantly faced round to me and crouched for another spring. I knew that I had to act now if I wanted to remain alive. It would not make the same mistake again. Pulling off my dress coat, I threw it down over the head of the beast. At the same moment, I dropped over the edge to the floor, seized the end of the front grating and pulled it frantically out of the wall. I rushed across the room, bearing the bars with me. As I rushed... I was upon the outer side. There was a moment's pause as I stopped and tried to pass in through the opening. In that moment, the creature tossed off the coat and sprang upon me. Ah! I hurled myself through the gap and pulled the rails behind me, but he seized my leg before I could get through. One stroke of that huge paw tore off my calf like a paring knife peeling an apple. The next moment, bleeding and fainting, I was lying among the foul straw with a line of friendly bars between me and the cat. He threw himself again and again against the bars, trying to find a way in. The cat strained to reach me with one paw, but I was too far back. There was blood on the paw. My blood. The beast pulled back and licked the blood off. Too wounded to move, too faint to be conscious of fear, I could only lie and watch it. Gradually, my mind drifted away, and I fell unconscious. I have no idea how long I lay there. What roused me to consciousness once more was a sound that I remembered from the night before. It was the shooting back of the bolt. Tommy? Tommy, my lad. Well, well, got him caged, eh, boy? He's done for. Look at all that blood. I suppose I'd better make sure. Let's shut this door so nobody spies on us, eh, boy? Get back, Tommy. Get out of the way. Get back now. Stop playing the fool. Lying there, more dead than alive, I remembered my cousin's words when I had first seen the beast. This fellow has never yet tasted living blood, but if he does, he will be a terror. Living blood. My blood. No. No, get away. The blood. What? Oh, damn! 
You're still... Tommy, no! Get back! I'm your master! King? Where am I? You're in my house. You have been ill for many days. Ill? I only wish to say that you have yourself to blame alone. Did I not do all I could do for you? What? From the beginning, I tried to drive you from this house. By every means short of betraying my husband, I tried to save you from him. But you would not listen. I knew that he had a reason for bringing you here. What reason? No one knew him as I did. I had suffered for years under his cruelty. He was a worse beast than the one in the cage. I did not dare to tell you this. He would have killed me. But I did my best for you. It is a miracle of God you are still alive. What, what, what do you... As things have turned out, you have been the best friend that I have ever had. You have set me free. And I had fancied nothing but death would do that. At your service, madam. <laughs> that is an English joke, and you are still an English fool. They are taking you back to your own lodgings in the morning. I am leaving now. You will not see me again. I remember the bustling about. I remember a carriage, and then a train, and then another carriage, but not very clearly. Things kept going in and out. One thing I do remember with perfect clarity is two glowing yellow eyes staring at me from the blackness. Staring at me. Staring at me. Staring at me. Oh, get away! Blood! Oh, get away! Your lordship, are you all right? Oh, Mr. Drake, am I home? Yes, your lordship. I wonder why I merit a visit from my solicitor. Is someone suing me? <laughs> Not at all, your lordship. I was having a dream... What did you call me? Your lordship. That's a poor sort of joke, Mr. Drake. Oh, it's no joke. You're Lord Southerton now. You've been Lord Southerton for the last six weeks, but the doctor said we mustn't tell you until now. He said it might retard your recovery. Six weeks? Has it been six weeks since I was... Yes, my lord. He died on that very day. Your cousin, Mr. Everard, was next in line after you. 
If it had been your lordship instead of him that was torn to pieces by this tiger, or whatever it was, well, then... And that was the reason his wife spoke of. Crikey. I really am a fool. It turns out the late his lordship's valet was in Mr. Everard's pay. He'd send him telegrams every few hours on how the old gentleman was getting on. Business. It occupied him constantly. I beg your lordship's pardon? Never mind. What's this? It's a walking stick, my lord. The doctor said your lordship would be needing one from now on. Did he indeed? Yes, my lord. And I thought... Yes? I thought I might fetch the checkbook, my lord, if you're feeling up to it. It seems there are a few financial matters that require your lordship's attention. I should say so, Mr. Drake. Thank you. Yes, your lordship. It shan't be a moment. Oh, Mr. Drake. Yes, my lord. What became of the cat? They had to kill it before they could fetch your lordship out. Shot it through a loophole in the door, I understand. They got your lordship out of the cage and then took away what was left of Mr. Everard. Poor brute. Well, my lord, if I might be permitted an unprofessional comment, it was a bit of a judgment on him. Yes, I suppose so. But I didn't mean my cousin, Mr. Drake. It wasn't him I was thinking of. Oh? Oh, I see. How extraordinary. You've been listening to The Brazilian Cat, adapted for audio by Jim Court, from a short story by Arthur Conan Doyle. Featured in the cast were David Grant as Marshall King, Kevin Nash as Everard King, Dale Lena Evans as Marina King, Larry Groby as the carriage driver and Baldwin the groom, and Gary Layton as Everard's servant and Drake, Marshall's solicitor. Music by Lucien Dessar. Recording, sound patterns, and engineering was under the direction of Richard Froelich. Copyright 2004. This is a Texas Radio Theater Company production. The Texas Radio Theater Company, in cooperation with the Arlington Museum of Art, performs modern audio theater in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. If you'd like more information about our group, you can log on to our website at texasradiotheater.com, or you can look for us on Facebook. I'm Rich Froelich, and on behalf of our cast and crew, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.